Good morning, family. Peace be with you. If I haven't met you, my name is Ashley. I'm one of our co-lead pastors here. It is a joy to be with you this morning. If you're still up and you would like to follow along in the text with us, I have a shed Bible here. We are going to be in Psalm 137. If you want to grab a Bible, because we have kids in the room today, we're actually going to invite everyone to read the psalm silently, and you'll see why. <laughs> but for those of you who don't have a Bible with you, um, we'll also have it on the screens and there'll be a pause in between each slide. We are in Psalm 137 in the Shed Bible, that's page 576, 576. So I invite you to read the Psalm silently now and then I'll read it aloud. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy are those who repay you according to what you have done to us. This is the word of the Lord. What I just read to you was the Walmart censored version of Psalm 137. It's not the version of the song as it was written. It's a version without one part of the offensive lyrics. Easier on the ears and comfortable to consumers who like the beat, but cannot take the heat. There's only two problems. The first is this, life 
is not always censored. And two, if we've largely kept the most painful parts of life on edit, there's a likelihood that number two, we have kept part of our lives outside the power of God's presence. Now it's no surprise that if this psalm were included on an ancient album, if you were to go to Sam Goody, if you remember those, if you remember Sam Goody or Warehouse Music, the album would absolutely be marked for explicit content. Parental advisory. It's hard. It's graphic and it's offensive, which is part of what defines Psalm 137 as our first imprecatory psalm of our current series. Imprecatory means to invoke evil or to curse. But keep in mind, this is just one of many. Just a week ago, Tim preached on Psalm 139, didn't you, Tim? where four verses were imprecatory themselves. We don't often think of Psalm 139, search me and know me, O God, as including a brutal piece of text, but it's there toward the end. I don't know about you, but I don't always, if ever, know exactly what to do with these passages. I don't know what to do with them. They don't fit too neatly in the good news of Jesus Christ that we proclaim, or so it seems. They don't serve as self-help guides or offer a silver lining. As a matter of fact, they complicate things further for us. And based on our bipartisan frameworks and black and white pick-asides, we don't like complicated, do we? We don't like complicated. Author Justo Gonzalez addresses us as Americans when he writes, we are afraid that the violent and otherwise questionable narratives of the Old Testament would pollute our children's minds and therefore we pollute them with a truncated view that parallels the view of American history with which they are being raised. Case in point, look up a transcript of Frederick Douglass's 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, before tomorrow's parades and festivities. But then Gonzalez continues, responsible remembrance, on the other hand, leads to responsible action. Forgetfulness is the easy way out, just as it was for the children of Abraham who refused to remember their bondage in Egypt. Psalm 137 is squirmy. We are less than five minutes in, folks. Are you squirming? 
What is she going to say? Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. What is Ashley going to say? Psalm 137 is squirmy, but it does not let us forget. It is squirmy, but it doesn't let us forget. And so while we're stuck under its testimony for a few minutes this morning, what do we make of it? I think whenever good news isn't obvious, perhaps we grab for invitations instead. In a world where we tend to censor what's unspeakable, allow Psalm 137 to make explicit three tracks of our lives. We're going to talk about our trauma, we're going to talk about our allegiances, and then we're going to talk about compassion. First up, trauma. Quick story, when I was little, my parents took myself and my half-brother to the Texas State Fair. Now, if you've been to a state fair, raise your hand. Yeah, what's the best part? Fried Oreos, correct answer. So we're at the Texas State Fair, and it's hot, as you can imagine. And at that time, the Texas State Fair, there was a big, like, uh, statue of this dude named Big Tex, and he would move every so often. He was, like, automated, and he was so cool. Well, we did the whole fair, and we're sitting to eat lunch. And unbeknownst to me, now keep in mind, I'm wearing my favorite overalls. They're white with black stripes, and I remember these cute little lime green flowers on them. Well, unbeknownst to me, as I go to sit on the picnic bench, my brother takes a wad of his gum and he places it on the seat. And I do not know until I stand up and discover in the hot Texas heat, because I smell it and I can feel it, that this wad of gum is stuck there. And folks, it does not come out. My overalls are ruined. And for the rest of the day, I smell minty fresh. I didn't like it. And so to this day, 30 years later, confession, I cannot chew gum because my memory of that experience is too vivid. Throw me your Tic Tacs, your Mentos, but please do not, I ask of you, invite me to chew gum because I won't do it. This is the first three verses of Psalm 137. The timeline is likely post-exilic, so after the exiles had returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity, but the new temple hasn't been built yet. And so what they're seeing is evidence of ruin and destruction. So as they're observing what had been done to their home, they're also recalling the vivid images of what had happened to them in exile. Weeping, the mockery of the Babylonians demanding they play their sacred songs. So here they are. Some think that these are a group of musicians, at least in part. They're hanging up their instruments in defiance and reaping the consequences. 
the memories of those days are too vivid. Now admittedly, I'm not a licensed therapist, but at the very least, for those of us who were told to tone it down, for those of us who have believed that our relationship with God was meant to be sanitized, that God would not accept us or our stories unless we cleaned up our acts first, that God would only accept our censored and Sunday best. For those of us who never heard about pain or found place for our deepest wounds or childhood memories in the backs of pews or in VBS memory verses, the invitation is to be comforted by the inclusion of a people's collective trauma because here it shows up. It shows up. What historic memory have we kept censored from God, perhaps as if it never happened? Or maybe for you individually, what are your own memories that you've kept from God? from your prayers, from your community, because you felt that they had no place there. The unspeakable things of this world, the unspeakable things of your world can and should show up. Sung Chan Ra, he explains it so beautifully when he says, there is power in bringing untold stories to light. The freedom to speak about the reality of suffering and death results in a freedom from denial. If you recall week one of our series, we said the Psalms tell the truth. Troy again, in his refrain of Psalm 46, this psalm tells the truth, and yet again, Mars Hill, Psalm 137 tells the truth. There is no denying what has happened in their past. But the psalm also makes explicit not just our trauma, but our allegiances. We move from remembering of grave injustice and trauma to a key question here in verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Such an interesting question. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? As if to say, the songs meant for the Lord were never meant to be misplaced. They were never meant to be relocated here. And at first read, it may seem as if God's people are wildly patriotic. If I should forget you, O Zion. If I should forget you, Jerusalem, right? The Babylonians thought the same, as a matter of fact, that these songs were indeed penned about Jerusalem herself. But one scholar reminds us that the Judeans themselves viewed these songs as sacred music. These were sacred songs, a song of the Lord, you might say. To them, these songs weren't about a city as much as they were committed to God and to God alone. The city was symbolic of the place of God's presence, the temple 
And so in verses five and six, there's a conditional loyalty expressed, not by we anymore, if you notice. The voice has moved from we to I. There is one person speaking here, as if to say, on the journey from collective trauma to a cry for justice, our individual allegiances will be clarified. They'll be clarified. And so what do we do with that? In their case, if a, mu if a musician were to forget the place of God's presence, as their lyre is hanging from their left shoulder, the right hand with which they would play it, if you see that imagery in the text, may my right hand forget its skill. If you ask me to play this song dedicated to the Lord anywhere else before anyone else, may I forget how to play that song that was dedicated only to God. May my mouth, my tongue used for singing, be rendered unmovable rather than consider any other place or presence as more worthy of what was intended for God. The message version of verse 6 translates as, If I fail, O dear Jerusalem, to honor you as my greatest. My greatest. So we cannot eject this psalm without asking ourselves, church, what or who in my life do I honor as my greatest? What do I honor as my greatest? That loyalty is not neutral. As we see, at least in Psalm 137, loyalty and allegiance ordered the degrees to which the psalmist was willing to suffer or to compromise. So we consider the same. If, for example, your greatest is your political party, you might eventually be willing to compromise your ultimate source of hope. If your greatest is your family, Nothing is greater than your family. You might be willing to sacrifice redemptive, mutually loving community where you both give and receive in time of need. If your greatest is a flag, you might be willing to someday compromise under triumphalist self-giving view inadvertently ignoring perpetuated oppression or supremacy, or maybe you trade in selfless, redemptive action for virtue signaling or inaction altogether. If your greatest is your iPhone, you might sacrifice the gifts of presence or trade in your attention from where it's needed most to the pursuit of influence or distraction. Do you see what's happening here? Our greatest, our allegiances are not neutral. In this case, because God's people placed Jerusalem or the place of God's presence as their highest joy, as their greatest. Their response to their traumatic remembrance called upon that object of their allegiance. It's right here in verse 7. 
Remember, Lord. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. Remember, Lord. Not remember, O people. Not remember, leaders. Not remember Republicans or Democrats or Independents. Not remember social media stranger who doesn't have a profile pic. Remember, Lord. The people of God are calling on God. In Romans, Paul calls the church at Rome to remember the same in chapter 12 of Romans. So, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. John L. Thompson says that human beings, even Christians, are far too hasty with justice and far too often very, very bad at it. Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ, one more time, only Jesus Christ can be trusted with imprecating his enemies. And so does this let us off the hook? Does this mean that because only Jesus Christ can be entrusted with imprecating the enemies of the world as we might see them, does this mean that we do nothing? The answer is no, because judgment belongs to God, but God calls us as uh, priests and priestesses, people who are called to reconcile in the world what has been broken, to mirror God's loving justice. It's, it doesn't mean we're off the hook. This means the ultimate judgment is God's alone, lest we believe that we can sit back and say, God, you've got it. Remember the temple, the new temple still hadn't been built. If you were here with us in the Nehemiah series, something new still had to be built to right what was wrong. But ultimately, church, it's God's to enact ultimate judgment upon the earth. Oh, man. Do y'all know I didn't really love writing this sermon? I got to confess that. This was a hard one for me. What do we do with verses 8 and 9? What do we do? God's people knew what had been prophesied. If you look at Isaiah 13 or Jeremiah 51, 56, in an almost merciful restraining request, in these two verses, we see restraint. They ask for there to be a repayment according to what was done to them. No less than what was done, but also no more. Remember, verse 9 is not God's voice. It's the voice of a people. Psalm 137 is a poem, not as scholars Harn and Strawn note, law from Sinai, nor is it moral exhortation. It's episodic, which means the very next day, in the very next season, the people of God could have written a completely different psalm. It's like if you remember, for any of you who journal, a journal entry that came on the heels of a really hard day 
and then the next day you didn't feel that way anymore, I'm a little nervous to see what my kids read in my journals one day. Psalm 137 is episodic, and we have to keep in mind also the context of how ancient warfare took place where infanticide was common. So this is historical, it's contextualized, but verse 9 might also be a window into what God's people actually witnessed. It might tell us what they went through. It might tell us the images, the nightmares come true that mothers tried so hard to shake from their memories. Maybe you have a trauma or an image that you wish you could shake, but you just cannot. If that's you, if that has impacted your deepest human relationships, if that memory has impacted your relationship with God as a lover of your soul and as one who cares for you, I'm sorry. I hope you and I can take comfort in the fact that this reality is represented in Scripture. You are seen. God does know. You were not forgotten. I hope that one day that memory is redeemed or even erased in Jesus' name. But if you're sitting here and you don't have a memory like that, if you feel like you've been peering from afar into someone else's window, there's still an invitation from all of us, and that invitation is to compassion. Whether for yourself, for the very first time, you say, God, I receive the compassion that you offer me as you gaze upon my life. Whether it's for a family member, a group of people you feel so far removed from or even pitted against in recent days. Perhaps you allow yourself to feel compassion for innocent lives gone too soon. Perhaps the Holy Spirit might open you up and allow you to feel compassion for parents who have very few options for their families. Imprecatory Psalms like Psalm 137, do more than just present us with explicit content that we slam shut, pretend do not exist. In the wake of pain, church, even in the wake of your own, in the face of what's explicit, it is a discipline, it is a holy discipline to choose compassion. If we choose not to shy away and over-censor holy offerings, like Psalm 137, whether we weep as the exiles did over their oppression, or we somehow find ourselves in the place, whether in the past today or tomorrow, in the place of Babylon as the oppressor, there was one whose body knows the pain of verse nine. One whose life wasn't censored and yet whose experience was inside the power of God's presence because he himself was God. 
one whose allegiance was about his father's business and who out of the greatest love and compassion was graphically crushed for the oppressed and the oppressor alike. This is his table from which we dine. This is his table. And at his table, nothing was held back from us. Not a single thing. Every bone broken, every ounce of blood poured out. Part of him, every single part of him was explicitly and purposefully given for the one who weeps and for the one who mocks and torments. And instead of happy are those who repay according to whatever wrong was done, he's also the one who sat atop the mountainside and proclaimed, we find this account in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you pray with me now? In a spirit of thanksgiving, we say, how right and a good and a joyful thing at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that as this word makes its way deep into our hearts and ruffles our feathers and kicks up all kind of dust, God, would your spirit settle it in this meal? Would we become full and satisfied in the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Do what only you can do in this time, in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so church, we recite and we remember once again the mystery of our faith. 
We call this to remembrance so that we will not be in denial about this great story that we have inherited. And we join our voices with the oppressed and oppressors alike who proclaim this good news and that mystery is this, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Family, perhaps you feel like your response in this moment is to deeper prayer, to allow myself to hold with you in the back as I stand there and during the Eucharist, perhaps something you haven't muttered in a long time or want to give over to God. But may the Holy Spirit in these moments bring you great comfort and peace as you dine from the table set by the one who was broken and poured out. All is ready. Receive who you are, the body of Christ.